Whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, the last best place or legends of the fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Okay, welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Today we're going to talk about two memoirs, uh, both by women. The uh, one from the past is called The Story of Mary McLean, but the original title was I Await the Devil's Coming. And that was published in, what, 1905? or? Um, I'll have to check the date here. I think it's 1901 is what I want to say. Anyway, it was a uh, huge... 1902. 1902. It was a huge hit when it came out. Uh, Mary McLean became a national superstar. She, she was the Lady Gaga of her day. Right, she really was. So she ended up moving to New York and becoming sort of the darling of the literary community there. And... Um, Eventually moved back to Butte again. She was born and raised in Butte, or maybe not born there, but uh, raised in Butte. She was born in uh, Manitoba, I think. Mm, okay. Um, and then our other book is a very recent memoir, hot off the press, as they say, by Melissa Stevenson, called Driven, A White-Knuckled Ride to Heartbreak and Back. And that is about her life and her... Uh, response to her brother's suicide and there's a line in your book that really stood out to me and I don't know if it was your aunt or grandmother or somebody said she's not going to leave him standing or something like that and it shocked me it was at that um, it was at the wedding and uh, Corey had disappeared for a while his new wife and I had had you know I'm a petite person it doesn't take more than a few drinks for me to have one too many and, you know, I'd had a few drinks and was like, I'm, I'm going to, like, say nice things to my new sister-in-law. You know, where is she? And she was nowhere to be found. Um, and my aunt just kind of said, yep, I don't think she's going to leave him standing. And I remember mm. it was one of those moments of shock. And the book is very much about this. There are these moments, I think, when you know something kind of dysfunctional is happening... Um, but you grow up in a family, which really could be any family, um, and no one's saying the things out loud. That was kind of one of the interesting things to me about the, the differences between these books. One of them was sort of uh, focused on a specific event, and... Um, most of the story sort of um, zeroes in on that event and moves toward it, and you know that's the. Focus. But it is a really interesting narrative style that yeah. that's always at the center. But she moves back and forth in time. Yep. And really, it's an interesting way to to present a narrative and connect it to her and her family. It yeah. Was really, and unusual and i really liked the uh i don't know what you would call them but the little date lines you know mm-hmm. here's one august 6 2000 um and they're in 
metallic, and they're just these little, they're almost like what-ifs kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, where she um, fantasizes about what might have been different if something had happened or something hadn't happened in, right. in the inner brother's life or in their whole family, really. But And I guess the other conceit of this memoir is that it's all about cars. Right. Like, it's a history of a life told in terms of all the different vehicles in their life. Right, it's right. It's really fascinating. I really loved about this book on a lot of levels is the conceit of telling a story through a history of cars. And one of the things that I think is interesting about it is you don't ordinarily think of women as car people. And I say that as a man who has no interest in cars. <laughs> right. And I've always kind of marveled at friends of mine who driving down the road with them and a car is coming at you and they can tell you what year and model the car is. I'm like, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a real sense of the importance of the car as an artifact in somebody's life. I guess my question is, what made you choose cars? Um, well, let me backtrack a couple things on that. One is there, it's funny how many people I run into who are like, well, I'm not really a car person. Um, but everyone's got a car story, you know, someone, oh, for will, sure, yeah. someone will start talking about, but I did own this, you know, whatever this, uh, 1984, um, Toyota when I was 17 and here's what happened to that car. Um, so I, I come at the attachment to cars in a real basic way, um, that was true to my family. Uh, as far as finding cars as kind of like a structure for this book or a shaping device, um, I knew I had to tell this larger story of my brother's death. I knew, I think I instinctively knew that um, I had to write that story before I could really move on and write other things. It was sort of this this uh, um, big thing in my path. And um, I kept trying to find a way to write that story, but that was too big. Whenever I would try to write that story, the sentences would just fall flat on the page. And I was kind of circling back to these little flash nonfiction pieces I'd written, and I wrote one that was 800 words called Valari, about um, the first one of my earliest memories, which is when my family bought a 1978 Valari, our first car, new off the lot. And the memory is kind of like going to the car lot and then driving that car off the lot. Like the Bruce Springsteen song. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that was really one of those moments that felt like an aha moment, but of course I'd been coasting on that plateau for a couple years of trying to figure out how to tell this story. And I think through, you know, hanging in there, not knowing the answer, then I'm, I'm looking at this little Valari piece and aha, and I immediately, without thinking, just started to write a list of all the cars we'd owned. And then, aha, my brother died and I inherited his car. And, aha, it was kind of haunted and then my van broke down. And, made me think about, you know, cars that my parents owned when I was a kid, and what a huge part of my life they were, and I never really thought about them after we got rid of them. Mm. But they kind of take on a, a mythos of their own. They do, yeah. They're, they're part of the family in their own funny way. And of course, <clears throat> she ends up with her brother's truck after his suicide, so it has a particular poignance there, too. The story ends with her driving his truck. 
Um, and in the interest of full disclosure, I should mention that I was actually really good friends with her brother right. in Athens, Georgia. Um, and so this this book really had a deep emotional impact on me because mm. I knew the guy. Yeah. You met him way before you met Melissa, right? Right. Yeah. 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 And then Mary McLean's story is uh, completely different as far as the narrative approach. I mean, she really doesn't even tell stories. She's more focused on like a philosophy of life and just sort of pondering her own existence. <laughs> I'm really glad you use that word because I've always thought of this book as a philosophy text. Uh-huh. She drops philosophers' names a lot, but it's really, you know, like Camus says in that book, uh, The Myth of Sisyphus, you know, the only real meaningful philosophical question is whether life is worth living. Uh, <laughs> and, um, yeah. You know, she's 18 years old when she writes this, publishes it when she's 19. And it's amazingly deep. But I have to say, I've taught it many times in classes and students hate it. They do? They do because... That surprises me. They're like, she's so full of herself. Oh, well, yeah. She um, is full of herself. That's but true. she has been compared to Nietzsche. And I think it's interesting because she says a lot of the same things he does in his last book, uh, Eke Homo. You know, with chapter titles like, Why I Am So Wise, Why I Am So Smart. <laughs> yeah. And she's constantly talking about how she's the smartest person on the planet. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you can kind of see why she thought that. I mean, growing up in Butte in the early 20th century, she was probably way smarter than most of her And like Muhammad Ali peers. said, it, yeah. ain't, it ain't bragging if you can do it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But she is really, really arrogant. And I think this narrative is hard for people to take, even in 2018. But yeah. imagine what this was like in 1902. Yeah, you can completely see why she um, alienated most of her hometown and f ended up moving away. And I, I always found it interesting that she ended up coming back eventually. How humbling. And writing for the paper, you know, a lot yeah. of her collected columns. Um, but I think, you know, maybe to give listeners who aren't familiar with the story a little background, she wrote this book and instantly it was a cause celeb and went to New York and lived this very bohemian lifestyle and was actually the subject of a major motion picture mm. called Men Who Have Made Love to Me <laughs> that came out in 1910. Um she was just shocking, racy. One of the things that I think must have shocked readers in 1902 is that she fantasizes openly about a lesbian affair with her right. biology teacher. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. unclear whether it actually happened or not, but she did um, have female companions later in her life. Um, was she ever married? That's a good question. I don't think so. Yeah, it seems like she never married. Yeah, I mean... It's interesting because you can see sort of right away that she's a person that sort of um, separates herself from the rest of the pack. And uh, that's part of her whole shtick is that, you know, she's not only smarter, but she's just, um, she's somehow, she feels so different. And she talks about that a lot. She and really, she um, she must have been a complete oddball in Butte in yeah. 1900. Um. But you mentioned that after her success, her I mean, world famous, mm -hmm. she comes back to Butte and, you know, everybody sort of hated her or thought she was super weird in Butte prior to her success. But then when she comes back, um, she, you know, everybody wants to have her at their parties. Oh, sure. And yeah. I want to read this section that I 
from Literary Butte that I found where um, an- another woman wrote a book, uh, Perch of the Devil, Gertrude Atherton, and she became friends with Mary McLean and recorded a conversation or transcribed this conversation that she had had um, at one of these parties that's really funny. Okay. Let's see if I can find it. Sorry. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, I'll, I'll mention one of my favorite. Um, she had a um, very interesting way of making her li- her life come to life in her writing through details. And one of my favorite chapters was um, where she talks about all of her family's toothbrushes. Oh, all yeah. All lined up on this shelf in their bathroom and how... Every day, these toothbrushes just torment her by because there's the reminder of how mundane and how boring her existence. And this is, is you know, fifty years before Jean Paul Sartre, you know, <laughs> does the same thing in nausea, right? <laughs> um, yeah, she and that's like you said, it really is a philosophical novel. Yeah, and she talks about how ugly beauty is. It's kind of the Platonic ideal of ugliness, mm-hmm. and that's why she loves it. Right, that's right. She she also talks about how much she loves it, which is. But this is a, a great scene where uh, Gertrude Atherton um, remembers something that Mary McLean said at this party. So she's, you know, come back to Butte. She's now world famous and everybody wants to be her friend. And they invite her to this party. And Gertrude Atherton says, they surrounded her, flattered her, quoted from her book. Um but McLean saw through their blandishments. She sat in silence, smoking, her long brown eyes <laughs> roving sardonically from one face to another. Finally, she arose, tossed her cigarette stub onto the Abasson carpet, and remarked, Do you know what you all remind me of, you fat, rich women? A lot of hogs with your feet in a trough. <laughs> so you can, you can see why she was uh, scandalous. Not very popular. <laughs> so I, I was fascinated by her obsession with the idea that the devil coming was going to be her her the turning point in her life like that was going to be the thing that turned everything around made her finally happy again right and you think about what the devil represents especially in 1902 and how she's openly courting that right um talking about her sexuality and you know i have that dictionary i showed you earlier this dictionary from 1905 called the fool's dictionary and the entry for devil says uh something you know about a religious dark religious figure now rumored to be courting mary mclean <laughs> right um it just shows how famous she became but know, also but... it is somehow indicative of her personality that you know she picks the worst possible thing you could imagine and that's you know she awaits the devil's coming and there's passages where it's pretty racy like yeah you know she's talking about doing the devil yeah right yeah and she's also kind of obsessed with suicide to sort of tie it in with melissa's book um there's that one chapter where she talks about this this deep well that she goes and sits by often and she imagines falling into it and you know the the writing in that particular chapter is so beautiful the way she describes what it would be like to fall and be at the bottom of this thing and nobody would be able to find her and all the different ways she might land and how she would have to deal with that if she ends up with her head out out of the water and all this stuff she goes into this incredible detail that's probably one thing we should not neglect is that the writing in the book is amazing yes it 
I think even more poetic is her next book called My Friend Annabelle Lee. Oh, really? Um, yeah. The the critics don't really talk about that book much, but lyrically, I mean, they're both really lyrical books. It's mm-hmm. almost like reading philosophical poetry. Yeah, I don't think the book would have been nearly as scandalous and popular if it wasn't well written. You know, yeah, it, it really was. Kind of... And one other, I think, point of history that's pretty interesting to point out is that this book came out in 1902, and the way it got published was she sent the manuscript to Herbert Stone, a big Chicago publisher, and he probably would have ignored it altogether, but his wife read it. Oh. And his wife said, you have to publish this book. Really? Wow. And so he did, and it, you know, in many ways made his fortune too. And then the following year, the same thing happened with uh, Kate Chopin, or Chopin, The Awakening. His wife read that one too? Same thing. (laughs) And he probably would not have been inclined to published The Awakening, which didn't do nearly as, I mean, it was uh-huh. sort of a commercial failure. Huh. Um, Interesting. But I think there's that weird connection to yeah. The Awakening. Huh. Interesting. So Melissa's book. Yes. Well, one thing they did have in common was that um, she sort of goes through her um, teenage angst period, and her brother is a big part of her focus during that time like she's she just wants to be accepted by this guy who's so cool and so he really was the embodiment of cool (laughs) (laughs) um you know having known him myself yeah i can attest to everything she describes you know tall handsome looked like keanu reeves and just funny but also just cool you know the italians have this word sprezzatura you know, it's somebody who's cool without looking like they're trying. Mm, mm-hmm. that, that would was, describe that Matt, him. Yeah. Huh. He was a doorman at the 40 Watt in, oh. in Athens, which was, you know, the big nightclub where all the bands played, REM, B-52s, drive-by truckers. He was really good friends with the drive-by truckers. Okay. So he was more of a, sort of a, just one of the he guys that character. knew everybody. Yeah, he yeah. was a character around town. Everybody knew him. He I you know, he had no enemies that I can imagine. Mm. Mm-hmm. And she, I think, really brings that out in the book, that he had this really powerful personality. Um, and she looked up to him. And that's, I think, one of the f- focuses of the book is he never really returned her exactly, admiration. Yeah. I mean, at moments he does. Yeah. And, of course, as someone who didn't know him, that was... That was hard for me to read because it almost felt like he was just cruel as far as the way he treated Melissa herself. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, the way he sort of with, withheld this the love that she wanted so badly. Um, so it, it made it more difficult for me to like him in some ways. But, um, yeah, and I wondered how, how other people might respond to that. way to describe Matthew too you know it almost like daily performance art yeah there is that part of like part of what made him so endearing or funny was this risk of um 
like making people uncomfortable and telling the story that you're like, oh, if it takes just, it tur- if it turns 10 degrees in the other direction, people are going to be like angry and offended. Right. Um, but then always trusting, like um, he was always deeply upset if he hurt someone's feelings. Oh, yeah. Um, he once ran over a friend's puppy. It was a total accident involving the Valari. It, it took him weeks. I mean, pretty much through the end of his life, no one could mention Ebba the puppy or he would be totally unraveled. Um, so there's this great tenderness, but also I think the electricity in the room, you know, he'd, it'd be a room full of our Hoosier relatives and he'd just, he'd test and he'd see how far, and then he'd get the whole story out and everyone would be laughing, but there was this sort of, um, willingness to take people to the edge and make them uncomfortable. And then that being the reward and the humor, but there, um, I remember the first time I looked up this book on Amazon, you know, I was slow to, you know, know what to do do with my first book coming out so my publisher finally was like you know you can share this it's available for pre-order and had been for a couple months and I was like no I don't no one told me I think the day it was announced I pre-ordered my copy thank you so I have two copies the one you gave me and then that one thank you um and so then I knew where that link was and and kind of forgot about it after I shared it and then a few months later checked back and I was like oh my god how the book's not even out how do I have two reviews and they were those, like, they call them Vine reviewers. Like mm-hmm. they, and one of them was this, it's still my only, you know, three-star review, which is fine. No, you could, you could give me a whole stack of National Book Award winners, and two of them I'd be like, really? Hey, really? I, that's not my book. It's not singing my song. But that review was titled, Cars Don't Commit Suicide, which is just kind of fascinating. I'm like, well, I can't argue with that. I'm not sure where you're going with that. And in it, she was like, you know, this book is really vulgar. And so with you talking about Mary McLean and writing about things you might not expect, it was very interesting. And always has been interesting, you know, my relationship with my brother. Um, I think our family has a real base sense of humor, but we totally know how to be appropriate, too, as did he. And he would kind of, like, vent that sort of old-school humor for us and bring those stories back. And, And he was definitely drawn to people living on the fringe. I mean, showing some boring person who works in a cubicle, which was me at one point in time any day, and he could care less. But, you know, Cletus, the fellow um, sanitation worker who's telling him about, you know, making jokes about getting a blowjob from a snake, um, and he's fascinated. Um, And so, you know, it was interesting to sit down and write this book and be like, I'm not trying to offend anyone. These are the stories that my brother gave me. And these are the stories of like growing up in Indiana. I'm not going to um, carve those out of the book either. So it's interesting to like um, have this real, um, maybe raw, vulnerable, sometimes poetic, emotive um, tenor. And then, uh, you know, be dropping in like the the Andy Smith jokes and things like that too. But it's true to my family. It's true to how I grew up. And vulgar, just you know, the root of that is vulgus, which just means the common people. That's exactly. It's interesting also that. You know, I'm trying to think of what, when you ask, what did he do? I don't, you know, I don't think of him as like an artist or a musician or anything. Yeah. He was just this really cool, charismatic guy. 
Whereas Melissa is really talented. She's incredible, yeah. And she describes herself as a wallflower. Like, right. you know, she's shy, more, more sort of the opposite personality from her brother. Exactly, socially and so that contrast in the book is also really powerful. Yeah. So she ends up going to Interlochen, which is one of the top uh, private schools for kids that are, have some kind of um, artistic talent. And studies with these great writers. Yeah. And... Starts out as in the uh, drama program, right? Right. Which she was not that great at, but um, discovered writing there, and that's where, th- where things started to turn for her. Um, so I, I was curious about what your thoughts about um, the evolution of her life in relationship to the, you know, her brother. I think the the fact that he was a suicide... I mean, after that, obviously, there's no history. There's no, there's, yeah, know, it's all the survivors. And that, to go back to Mary McLean and Camus, you know, note that that's really the fundamental philosophical question that just forces everybody around you to think about, you know, mm-hmm. what is life worth living and, you know, why does somebody do that? And then I think there's always the impulse afterward you know, could I have stopped this? Right. What could I have done to prevent it? And a really close friend of mine committed suicide when I was in college and, you know, had called me like Mm -hmm. a couple of weeks before and told me Mm. she was going to do it. Oh, really? Wow. And my reaction was, you know, it's because you're living in Great Falls. It's like, get out of there, you know, come hang out with me or whatever. And and then after it happened, I was tortured by this thought that, you know, I should have yeah. got on a plane and done something. But years after this, her mother told me, you know, that was not a cry for help. Mm. That was just saying goodbye. goodbye. You know, it's like once somebody has made up their mind like that, there's yeah, not a lot you can do. I think in Matt's case, though, it's the tragedy is compounded by the fact that he, you know, he was drinking a lot. Yeah. Doing a lot of drugs. And then there's this whole other dimension to the story that, you know, he's married to yeah, this... a musician in a band called Nashville Pussy. Right. Which, you know, they were nominated for a Grammy. Mm-hmm. Um, and hanging out with all these rock stars. And it was a lifestyle, I think, that was overwhelming. Yeah. Well, you know, you talk about the regrets and those turning points. And um, there's that one powerful m- moment where her family... Um, she finds out later they refuse to pay his way to come to her wedding. Uh, her her mom wouldn't her her mom wouldn't get her get him a ticket to come and um and also the moment where they tried to get him they were thinking about doing an intervention and that didn't happen either and you know you know you can't help but be haunted by those things but um and she she explores that whole that whole feeling of regret and second guessing yourself really well and how complicated families are oh yeah this is also about her and her parents yeah and her parents weird dynamic and right life is complicated yeah yeah who said this Someone said this recently. I think it was Alexander Chi in his collection of essays, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. I just read that. Um, 
in September, and um, somewhere in there, he throws out this idea that when you finally write about someone, that's kind of when they leave you. And the entire time I wrote this, which I was working on this on and off for eight to ten years, um, in smaller form, before I even tried to tackle it as a bigger book, and then the last two years, you know, it's sold and you're just doing edits and waiting for it to come out. But that was a long period of my life, and I had um, my portion of Matthew's ashes on the desk at all times. And there are certain parts of the book that, um, cheesy as it sounds, I don't feel like I wrote entirely myself, especially some of the sections that... that um, come from his point of view the day that he died and, and little tidbits. Um, and when I sold the book, I finally went up Mount Sentinel here in, in Missoula, which is probably illegal, and got rid of his, his ashes. I, I let him go. And um, I really do feel like there's finally peace in that situation, and oh, yeah. he's not kind of hanging around in a, in a way um, like that it was leading up to this. And, and this is our product that we kind of made together in a way. And I also feel like, for better or for worse, having gone into all the hardest pockets of that trauma, it makes it hard. You know, people have to be willing to go there when they read, um, so it's not an emotionally easy read. Um, but for me, going and, and examining all the little pockets of trauma have this repetitive effect where... I don't feel like they have power over me now well, yeah. the way that they used to. And I say that carefully because I don't like the whole, like, oh, I just wrote for therapy. I didn't just write for therapy. I wrote because I wanted... This is the, the kind of book that I would have wanted to have had when I went through this experience. And, and then in the end, it almost felt like to me that, um, you know, the way he left the world um sort of provided melissa with an opportunity to blossom a little bit because um you know she she was always sort of in his shadow and um you know in a way she it seemed like she felt like he deserved to be more successful somehow and the the fact that he was out of the picture allowed her to focus more on her own yeah i think there's something to that and i also think this would be a great book without the suicide i mean the yeah whole, the right. whole idea of telling a life story through the cars yeah. in your life is great but then i think that whole other tragic episode and how she's dealt with it and what it meant to her family and friends and you know that's a pretty big historical event yeah so yeah i guess i would have to say that we we both uh love both of these books would rec highly recommend both of them as not only as um sort of examples of really well-written memoirs by Montana writers, but, um, you know, just fabulous examples of uh, books that are written about a particular time period. And right, they really capture a zeitgeist in mm -hmm. an unusual way, both of them in an yeah. unusual way. And they're both, you know, at the sentence level, they're both awesome writers. Very good writers, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... Both of them, I would say, like, you know, Alan Jones's Bloom of Bones that we talked about. I, I read it in one sitting, both mm, of these, these mm -hmm. books. So, yeah, we recommend The uh, Story of Mary McLean or I Await the Devil's Coming. And Driven, A White Knuckled Ride to Heartbreak and Bag. By Melissa Stevenson. I'm Aaron Parrott. 
I'm Russell Rowland, and thanks again for joining us on Breakfast in Montana. We'll talk to you next time.